what does compassion look like? Are you a compassionate person? How do we know if person is a compassionate? Well, compassion is one of those words which has a universal seal of approval, don't you think? Everyone knows compassion is a good thing and we should uh, practice more of it. No one can speak against a word like compassion. That's true, isn't it? It's unlike the word, for example, the word judgment. You know, depending on where you stand on the theological spectrum, you either love it or you loathe it. See, uh, for, for evangelical Christians like you and I, if there was no such thing as God's final judgment, then this world and all the troubles, uh, terrible things that we experience in this world uh, would be unbearable. It's because we know that God's judgment is coming that we can endure the sufferings and injustice of the present world. But you see, some people cannot stomach such idea. Um, they would not accept that the loving and compassionate God can be so harsh and cruel that he would send anyone to hell, regardless of how they live their life. Uh, for them, being compassionate means making no value judgment whatsoever, but approving and accepting everything. They argue that Jesus alienated no one. They argue that Jesus made no one feel judged. Well, what does compassion really look like? Um, we, we're told uh, in today's passage that Jesus' heart is filled with compassion. And so let's turn our attention to this passage and think a little bit about how Jesus practiced his compassion. But if you look at the, uh, the passage closely, it, it starts uh, in, in a slightly strange way. Have a look at verse 13. When Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Uh, you know, uh, way back in chapter 4, which is a couple of years ago, uh, that we, we dealt with this passage, way back in chapter 4, we are told that Jesus began his public ministry soon after hearing the news that John the Baptist was arrest, arrested. So when John, uh, so Jesus heard that John had been arrested, uh, this is back in chapter 4, verse 12, uh, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Caponium by the sea. And down in verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus began way back in chapter 4, his public ministry. But by the time we get to chapter 14, which is today's passage, John had been arrested, he was killed, and he's buried for quite some time. See, this is why, why Herod said in chapter 14, verse 12, have a look at chapter 14, verse 12, this Jesus is John the Baptist. He had been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So by the time we come to today's passage, John the Baptist has already been buried um, and, and Jesus' fame spread all the more. So now Matthew tells us in verse 13 that Jesus heard the news concerning Herod's fear towards himself. 
So having heard such a news, what does Jesus do? He chose to withdraw himself to a desolate place in chapter 14, verse 13. Now, why did he do this? We assume that it's because there was a possibility for Herod to try and take Jesus' life as well. You know, it might as well kill Jesus too because he killed John the Baptist. But was Jesus scared? Of course not. You know, he could easily summon the angelic armies of heaven to destroy Herod. Instead, it was because he had such a clear understanding of the mission which he received from the Father to go to the cross. He understood that this mission was to be, his mission was to be rejected by everyone, including his own father, and die as a despised and condemned criminal upon the cross, bearing upon himself the sins of the world. You know, he's about to start teaching his disciples about the cross. In fact, a chapter later in chapter 16, verse 21 straight after Peter said, you are the son of Christ, the son of the living God, we're told that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so right throughout his ministry, at crucial moments where he could have easily found a way to take hold of the situation and to turn it around to his advantage, he chose not to do that and instead, quietly, he walked away, waiting in faith for the moment that his father designated for him to face the cross. Him withdrawing himself at this moment was in fact an act of humble and yet resolute faith in God. He knew where he was going. He knew what was going to happen. And so he withdraws himself, waiting for that moment to arrive. So it is no wonder, therefore, we find Jesus in prayer. Have a look at verse 22. Immediately, that is, straight after Jesus fed 5,000 men, and if we count women and children, it could easily have been well over 10,000 people at least, I reckon. So immediately after he made, so immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had dismissed the crowd, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. It is interesting how, uh, in, in, uh, how Matthew puts in verse 22, he made the disciples get into the boat. It's as if Jesus hurried he dragged his disciples to get into the boat to send them away. Now, Matthew doesn't mention this, but look at what John said in John chapter 6, uh, 6 verse 14. Uh, have a look at quickly. Uh, go to John chapter 6, verse 14. Uh, it's talking about the same event. And this is how John um, speaks. When the people saw the sign that he had done, that is, feeding of the 5,000 people, they said, this is indeed a prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
You see, it's such a, a crucial moment. When his mission was on the line, when he was tempted to become king, not by the way the God his father intended, what does he do? He commits himself to God in prayer. Why? Because he knew why he was sent into the world. The cross was at the very forefront of his mind. And that's why Jesus, at this crucial moment, commits himself to God in prayer. And that was the very foundation of Jesus' compassion. Have a look at verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed the sick. You see, what was at the forefront of his mind? His mission, the mission that God gave him to come into the world, to die for sinners, that they might be reconciled to God. He knew where he was going. And so when he came ashore, he saw the great crowd. We're told that his heart was filled with compassion. You know, it's such a, a stark contrast to Herod, whose attitude towards people he ruled was only fear that rose out of the sense of self, self-preservation. He wanted to put John the Baptist to death, but he feared the people because they regarded John as a prophet. We're told in chapter 14, verse 5. Later on, he wanted to actually spare John's life, but again, he was driven by fear of the people who were present at this birthday party. So he agreed John to be beheaded. The only thing that governed Herod's mind was self-centeredness, self-preservation. But how different was Jesus? And as he was withdrawing himself from Nazareth, his own death on the cross was at the forefront of his mind. But even in that moment, Jesus' heart was filled with compassion for the people who came to ask for his help. But we'll do well to notice that there is this is not the first time in Matthew's Gospel that we are told that Jesus was overwhelmed with compassion. Uh, way back in uh, chapter 9, Matthew reports about Jesus in this way. Chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, have a look at it. And Jesus went throughout the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, of, uh, kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. You notice how Jesus is in the middle of teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. When he saw the crowds being like sheep without a shepherd, he taught his disciples to pray to God for more gospel preachers to be raised. See, the primary and the most fundamental way in which Jesus' Jesus' compassion towards the people was expressed was 
in his preaching and his proclamation concerning God's eternal kingdom, where the submission to and a total acceptance of the kingship and his reign, Jesus' kingship and his reign, are the condition for entry. This message of the gospel of kingdom begins with the word repent. A call for repentance, that is a fundamental reorientation of one's life around Jesus, was part and parcel of the message of the compassionate Jesus. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying, therefore, we should stop doing any humanitarian work and just preach the gospel. I'm not arguing for cessation of caring for the weak and the vulnerable people in our society. On the contrary, we Christians should do far, far better than everyone else in caring for those who need help. But I'm neither saying that therefore we should make humanitarian work the fundamental mission of the church as a whole. Individually, be as kind and generous as possible. Seek the opportunity to be financially generous towards, uh, towards those in need. You know, organisations like Anglicare or Compassion do great work in caring for the weak and the vulnerable. Sign up with them and be a, a regular and a generous donor. Seek your own uh, opportunity personally to, to lend a hand whenever the opportunities arise. But when we come together as a church, put the proclamation of the gospel at the centre of everything that we do collectively. Now, notice that Jesus actually healed the sick and fed the hungry. Why did he do this? Was he setting an example? Well, if that was the case, for whom... And to what extent was he setting an example? Was he simply demonstrating to his followers that they should also be compassionate? Well, if that was the case, I think it is a little bit confusing because none of us can show compassion to others in the way that he did. None of us can heal the sick, and certainly no one can feed the 5,000 in the way he did. You know, besides, Jesus didn't always automatically attend to the needs of the people. Remember back in chapter 13, verse 58? When he was visiting his hometown, Nazareth, he chose not to do any mighty works because of the unbelief of the people in their town. Whereas later on, it was the end of the chapter that we are looking at in verse 14, 34 following, Jesus didn't spare himself from healing in Gennesaret. Well, how is this so? Was he exemplifying here a a discrimination, so to speak? You know, as as I've already said earlier, there is no doubt that we who follow Jesus should be compassionate towards those who are in need. But we should note that there is more important reason why Jesus was doing all these amazing works. In, my, in some sense, the, the story that we read here, that is the feeding of the 5,000 people, healing of the sick people, and, and rescuing Peter from this stormy water, is a little bit like a microcosm of what is happening in our world. 
It's a broken world. People are dying. People are sick. They are lost. They are sitting under the judgment of the eternal God. They are in desperate need of rescue. Uh, I don't know how you feel about this. You felt uh, when Ezekiel 34 was being read. I was hoping that you would sense the, the rage that God was feeling in his heart as he was looking at the people of Israel wandering around like a lost sheep and their leaders were taking advantage of, of these lost people. And God's heart was filled with anger and, and compassion. It's a broken world where no one is taking care of people and everyone is out there to take care of themselves. But notice how in Ezekiel 34, God makes a promise. Yes, it is like this at the moment. And it's been like that ever since Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. But God was making a promise that a day is coming when God's chosen king will come into this world and he will put everything right. And so, in many ways, the miraculous work that we see in chapter 14 and right throughout the gospel is actually an indication that the time is now right on God's part that his promises are about to be fulfilled. The long-waited God's chosen king is now going to do his work in order to set things aright. And so feeding in the desolate place, the miracle, well, there is a, 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 a picture of a great banquet where there is no more hunger, there is no more thirst, where God provides abundantly for uh, the needs of his people. It's interesting how uh, right throughout the Bible, uh, Jesus, sorry, uh, often throughout the gospel, Jesus uses the picture of a banquet to speak about God's kingdom. You know, if you're a a part of Kim's family, uh, you know uh, what food means to us. We love eating. Um, Jessica makes, makes every mealtime a kind of a banquet. It's, it's just such a joy to be part of this wonderful setting where we are eating, where we're laughing, where we're talking. We are enjoying the abundant provision that God has provided for us. And it is no wonder that Jesus uses that kind of language to speak about the coming kingdom. You see, I think this is why um, church... Um, occasionally, or uh, whenever possible, putting on a banquet together is a good thing. Uh, you're about to uh, do a, a Lord's Supper, uh, but uh, I mean, you're not going to. We're not, not going to look at the, the bread and wine as kind of a feast, but it's symbolic, isn't it? It's it's what we are going to be doing 
when God's kingdom is going to be finally and fully realized amongst us and we are going to be eating in abundance. No one is going to miss out, unlike in this broken world. And so Jesus is doing this to foreshadow the amazing work that God is about to do through his death and resurrection. Or taking his disciples across this tempestuous sea. Who does this? Well, remember uh, 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 in the Old Testament, uh, we went through the Exodus not too long ago. God was the one who led his people through the sea to the other side into the promised land or journey towards the promised land. God is the one who walks on water and calms it down for his people. The world is coming where there is no more wind, no more waves, no more threat to our existence. Only where peace rules, God's eternal peace. And so the miracles that he performed in chapter 14 is a kind of an indication. It's a miracle for the purpose. Not just Jesus was demonstrating that we should be kind and, and, and compassionate to people. We should be kind and compassionate to people. But what he is doing here is he's indicating the kind of future that he is about to bring. And so what about the disciples here? You notice how um, uh, uh, in chapter 14, as Jesus was feeding the 5,000 people and the disciples came and said, Lord, send these people away because we have no provision for, for them. And what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? You give them something to eat. Now, I don't know whether uh, he said this with a bit of a... Uh, sheepish smile on his face. But if I was um, there as one of his Jesus' disciples and I was told to feed 5,000 people, I would have thought he lost his mind. I mean, these are at least 10,000 people and we've got five loaves of bread and two fish and what does he expect me to do? But they did, didn't they? I mean, when Jesus enabled them to distribute the food, they were able to feed 5,000 people. Or look at the example of um, Peter walking on the water. I mean, who would have ever imagined that someone uh, other than Jesus, a normal human being, would actually jump into the water and not sink in, but actually walk across? But when Jesus invited him to come and join him, he did. You see, when we are in Jesus, we can do amazing things. Now, that is not to say, therefore, we will perform miracles. Remember, this everything is in context of Jesus 
doing his mission. And he already asked his disciples to pray for more laborers to be raised. I think it's an invitation that in Jesus' mission, as he faces the cross and as he dies the death that you and I deserve, and as he rises again and, and uh, with the resurrection power that he empowers you and I to participate in his mission, that we will be able to do amazing things. But what kind of amazing things? Well, enabling people to come out of darkness into his wonderful light. You know, I heard an amazing story last week where someone who came to church through an invitation of someone came to church for the first time, was so impressed by the way people were interacting with each other and especially towards that person. And so that person decided to read the Bible himself. And after a while reading through the whole of one of the Gospels, he said to his friend, you know what? I think I'm going to be a Christian. This Jesus is amazing. I actually want to follow him. You know, this person who invited his friend to come to church never expected anything like that to happen. I mean, he did. He prayed for him and, and so on but didn't realise this is how it was going to pan out. And so God uses this uh, a person who is unsure of the outcome and he brings about this amazing result. It gives us so much confidence and courage about what we can do in our ministry of the proclamation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Let me conclude. Is there a more important thing in life than knowing and trusting Jesus? I mean, it's a rhetorical question. But I really want you to think about it. Is there a more important thing in life than knowing and trusting this amazing Jesus? Consider how amazing he is, how worthy, how powerful, how generous and compassionate he is. We read about his thoughts, his motivations. We read about his focus and in every way he proves to be a worthy king who deserves nothing but absolute trust. And I've got all my money bet on him. There is nothing reserved in my life to serve him and trust him. And as a result, those who put their trust in Jesus will receive the real satisfaction. The sick are healed. The hungry fed. The dead are raised. And when God's eternal kingdom, as promised, is finally realized, and be assured, friends, that day is coming. And how do we know that? 
Well, because Jesus was raised, God raised Jesus to life. And so we know for sure that this eternal kingdom where the real satisfaction abundantly is, is provided for us, that day is coming. Look forward to this real satisfaction, the abundant provision, the real life. But in the meantime, we are here living as Jesus' disciples. We are to learn from him. We are to listen to him carefully. We see what he does. We think about why he does what he does. We understand how Jesus was so focused upon what he was about to do upon the cross. And so, in our life, we put the proclamation of this gospel at the forefront of our, our life, our ministry, our church activities. Because in that, we understand the true nature of Jesus' compassion. He wasn't just feeding the hungry people. He wasn't just being kind to people. He did all this because he wanted to see them in God's eternal kingdom. And so, friends, there is an invitation for you and I to take part in these mighty works of Jesus. What a joy and privilege it really is when Jesus invites his disciples to take part in distributing the bread. Or how amazing it was for Peter to walk on water at Jesus' invitation. Jesus, right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, as we know, he makes promise to his disciples. Go to the ends of the world. Make disciples in my name and I'm going to be with you till the end. And so, friends, um, as we work our way through Matthew's Gospel, I hope and uh, pray that you'd also be amazed and marvelled by this Jesus, that your heart might be captured, captivated by his generosity, by his power, by his majesty, and put your hope and trust in this truly worthy king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for our Lord Jesus. Thank you for enabling us to see the glory of the gospel uh, in Jesus. We thank you that he's our king who can provide everything that we need in abundance. And so help us, Father, to grow in our faith towards him. Please fill our hearts with the love and worship of him. We pray, Father, that we would be the people who learn from him and grow more and more like him. And in doing so, Father, we pray that you would encourage us to take part in his mission, calling upon people to turn to him also in faith 
and repentance. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.